Hey everyone, and welcome to a podcast by Buffalo Occupational Therapy for student and OT practitioners looking to bridge the gap between what you were taught in school and real-world OT practice. We are all about using our full scope of practice and understand that OT is so much more than ADLs. We are a medical science, we are a social science, and we are the cutting-edge next generation of OT practitioners. Welcome to Rethink OT. This episode is on executive function in occupational therapy. So if you've ever considered performing cognitive remedial therapy or working on executive function deficits within occupational therapy practice, this episode is for you. Let's jump in. The odds are very likely that if your client has a neurological condition, they will also have low-level cognitive and executive function deficits. In OT school, we are taught the overarching principles of working with cognitive deficits, but that's usually where it stops. If we're being completely pragmatic, unless you have worked in a practice setting where you have needed to refine your competence on the restorative potential of cognition and executive function, you probably won't be teaching it in your classes. Remember that schools teach you the bare minimum and it's your job to research and continue learning restorative, rehabilitative, and habilitative principles of these diagnoses. I know I say it all the time, but we are restorative aids first. That's how we stay true to our history and it's also how we continue to fit into the medical model as an occupational therapy practice. In outpatient rehabilitation, you will work with many adults with progressive neurological conditions, and it will be your job as an occupational therapy practitioner to understand the cognitive mechanisms and how to restore and maintain executive function superimposed on occupational performance. Okay, that was a that was a mouthful, right? But really, I said dual tasking. So let me say that again. It's your job as an occupational therapy practitioner to know how cognition works with movement. In other words, it's your job to understand the cognitive mechanism and how to restore and maintain executive function superimposed on occupational therapy performance. This is everything. The occupational therapy practitioner is oftentimes the first healthcare professional to spot these concerns as they become apparent during task or activity analysis. When we look at um, attention, executive function, memory, and behavioral components of a task, this is where we're going to start seeing holes, and it's our job to address them. Anything, any structure, function, and performance skill that is impeding or impacting the ability to engage in an occupation or its related activities is our job to address. And that's, I think, very, very important to be reminded of. Cognitive-based plans of care can take into consideration cognitive enhancement medications prescribed, if any. So it is important to understand pharmaceuticals. It's important to have a initial competency in them and be aware of your patient's medication list. I'll always collect their medication list. It's my job to know how it might 
interact with anything we're doing in therapy or warning signs to watch out for. It's always important to go back to, you know, courses like um, medication or pharmaceuticals on MedBridge and just have a basic understanding of them. Cognitive stimulation activities are also something that you want to consider. Um, so these are cognitive stimulation activities are discussion-based activities to promote stimulating mental activity. This is an important part of the process. So this is different than actual cognitive training or cognitive rehabilitation. Cognitive stimulation activities are a component of the process, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Lastly, um, or additionally, we want to consider compensatory and adaptive strategies, both internal and external strategies, for the completion of tasks while living with altered brain function. And finally, cognitive training, which is designed specifically to the patient's cognitive deficits and incorporates elements from the client's personal factors, environmental factors, and occupational or activity-based analysis. So basically I said, Cognitive training requires you to work within the PEO model, and by doing that, you are addressing needs within each part of that model. We can't just focus on person when we are a holistic profession, so that's why we learn these types of frameworks. So all in all, what I said in that paragraph was that if you're following a cognitive-based plan, you want to consider medication, cognitive stimulation, compensatory strategies, and actual cognitive training. You need all of them to be a cognitive-based plan. You cannot just live, breathe, in, and remain in, in compensation um, as an occupational therapy practitioner. So I want to discuss some of the conditions first leading to cognitive impairments, and then I want to jump into uh, big definitions and, and concepts that you should understand if you're working with executive function in occupational therapy. So first, conditions leading to cognitive impairments. You have major structural changes that can cause low-level cognition or, or executive function deficits, including traumatic brain injury, other acquired brain injuries like cerebral vascular accidents, aneurysms, uh, arterial venous malformations or AVM bleeds, uh, Parkinson's, MS, dementia, right? Alzheimer's, uh, Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias. And then, of course, there's a huge list and you can check all of that uh, out if you're a BOT Portal member. Please make sure that you head to the BOT Portal and you look at the full executive function OT evaluation and treatment profile. All of the specifics are there. You also have some temporary conditions. Not everything is a is a is a complete write-off. We don't always want to say, okay, this person has executive functioning deficits and cognitive dysfunction. Well, now they're altered forever and they should be in an SNF or an ALF. That is not that is not OT. We are least restrictive. We don't want them in these buildings if they don't have to be. We want them in their home. So we need to know what's temporary. You want to teach your clients about temporary changes so that they know that they need to do something about it, they can address it, and there's hope. Nobody else is helping people understand that there are so many reasons that they could be experiencing memory and executive function-related concerns. 
So caregivers are seeing these signs and symptoms thinking, well, mom is mom is going downhill. She has Alzheimer's. And really, it's it could be a number of reasons. So that's why we need to understand this list. Again, the full and complete list can be found on the bot portal. You have conditions like debility, UTI, anesthesia, dehydration, medication management concerns, insomnia, cancer or chemotherapy. And then finally, we have what's called hospital delirium or, or dementia induced by new environments. People who are disoriented or in a new place can have temporary conditions of executive dysfunction, and we need to understand that and be mindful of that when you're evaluating or treating someone in one of these buildings. We need to know that a certain level of this can improve or return if they were to go home. So keep that in mind and educate your patient on that possibility. Moving on to explanation of key terms. Earlier in this episode, I discussed with you habilitation versus rehabilitation. So let's explain these two terms. In every plan of care, an OTP must decide if they are using a rehabilitative or habilitative approach. Which box are you going to check? AOTA has a uniform explanation of habilitation services fact sheet article. It's in this article that they define these two principles. Habilitative is helping a person learn something for the first time, including services and devices. Let me read that again. Habilitative is helping a person learn something for the first time, including services and devices. For example, working with early intervention or school-based clients progressing through human development and experiencing that initial skill acquisition for the first time, this is considered habilitative or habilitation. The same is true for somebody with a neurodegenerative condition or post-traumatic incident where their foundational capabilities have been altered. So this could be from, this could be like a secondary impact or a progressive or a permanent function related or structural related change. Every single time that person stages they are progressing through their version of human development. We can't isolate human development and the study of human development to early intervention and pediatrics. We are called as occupational therapy practitioners to address the needs of a person throughout human development, which is why we take those courses in school. This is whether someone is well, or living with a condition. If somebody is living with a condition that's progressive in nature, their line of human development may speed up, right? It will be greatly impacted by a terminal disease or progressive disease. It's our job to know each stage and how to help somebody experience their maximum functional capacity within these stages. So this would be considered habilitation or habilitative. If you still need a visual in your mind, here are some OT-specific scenarios for you. One, it would be considered habilitative 
If you're training a client on using adaptive mobility and adaptive equipment after a posterior hip replacement to ensure independence without breaking precautions. Now, as of 2021, 2022, most surgeons are using an anterior approach without precautions. However, that would be one example of habilitation. You are teaching a new skill to apply to their current disruption. Next, training a client on internal and external strategies to use for loss of memory and executive function, health management. So that would include health management, adaptive mobility strategies, durable medical equipment, orthoses, adaptive equipment. This is for a progressive neurological condition. This will be true, like I said, during every stage of their illness. So when you're teaching somebody or training somebody on these strategies, ways to change the way they're doing something that is considered habilitative because they're learning a new skill for their new this new um this new stage of human development i will stress it again you do not stop experiencing human development at the age of 18 you are always experiencing new things you are always having to adapt to changes in your body. You're going to have to, to learn a new way to do a skill that you need to perform in order to be independent. Finally, training a client on health management strategies, joint protection strategies, modalities, adaptive equipment, um, and adaptive mobility techniques with arthritic nature diagnoses. So again, someone's diagnosed with a chronic condition that's going to affect human development, they're going to have to change the way they're doing things, this is considered habilitation. Now, without getting too far away from executive dysfunction, habilitation is where we live and breathe in many settings when it comes to this topic. And that's why I'm addressing it because, like I said, when you're dealing with, with changes in the brain, this is a something new this person has never experienced and they're going to have to learn strategies for the rest of their life to, to address uh, their, their changing level of performance. Then you have rehabilitation. According to AOTA, rehabilita rehabilitative approach is helping a person relearn something after an injury, illness, or disabling condition. Rehabilitative is truly restorative. We do both. So the question then becomes, can an occupational therapy practitioner really restore executive function and low-level cognition? The short answer is yes. It's important to note that most of the time, 100% evolution to prior level of function is not what the goal of our plan of care is. With that said, any ability to improve a remaining function using our clients' familiar ways of performing an activity is considered restorative. There's available research that supports restorative potential, albeit limited, into moderate stages of Alzheimer's disease is a thing. <laughs> it's possible. As occupational therapy practitioners, we need to understand what the current research is for our patients. We are charged with allowing our client to live a least restrictive, which means a life with as little adaptations, modifications, and compensations while living with any diagnosis as possible. 
we must do our part to explore all avenues of this major body function, which is executive function, right? I want to express before we move on that AOTA has done a lot of work from 2010 to 2017. They fought to ensure that our patients could bill for habilitative services. So when looking at the difference between habilitative and rehabilitative avenues of, of therapy execution, we need to understand that although we don't always see what is being done through AOTA behind the scenes, this was a huge win for our profession. Could you imagine being unable to bill for habilitative services as an occupational therapy practitioner? This is a crucial part of our domain. So I want to give credit where credit is due uh, when we talk about this because this was a direct result of advocacy at a national level. The next, uh, the next concept I want to discuss is neuroplasticity. There is an entire recording and training within the bridge on neuroplasticity, so please check that out. There's also a training on it in the bot portal, so also please dig into neuroplasticity. What I want to share with you right now regarding neuroplasticity is that neuroplasticity allows neurons or nerve cells to change in their core functions. The types of neurotransmitters they create and transmit, it can actually morph, right? This genetic material can adapt to develop more synapses, build more dendrites, and regrow after damage. Now, we all know that once a brain cell dies within the central nervous system, it can't, re it doesn't come back. It's cell death, necrosis, it's gone. With that being said, it's important to know the neuroplastic tendencies of the brain when it comes to what we are capable of doing as therapy practitioners. Neuroplasticity is a permanent change in the cellular structure and the way the cells communicate. What happens when we target cognitive remedial therapy to the deficit in the brain, which is why it's so important to know neuroanatomy, when we target our treatments to impact the skill that there is a visible deficit in, you are telling the brain, hey, we have to use this area. There's cell death in this area. We're not functioning at top, you know, at top percent. We have to find a way through. We have to find a way around it. And it will it will ignite a compensatory mechanism within the brain to turn up the, the surrounding structures so that it be, they begin to actually compensate for the loss in the structure in the middle, for example. So think about that every time you're doing a treatment, you're actually changing the morphology of somebody's brain. So keep that in mind, and that's all I'll say on neuroplasticity because I've already done a full training on it within the bot portal, so go check that out. The next concept I want to discuss with you is cognitive reserve. That goes hand in hand with neuroplasticity. Memory is actually more complicated than you would think when it comes to cognitive reserve. There are several types of memory and each can be affected differently depending on many factors. Did you know that two people could have the exact same diagnosis but their memory will be impacted differently and at different rates? 
This means that you may have two patients admitted to the memory unit that require an evaluation, but both of these patients will have the same diagnosis for the same number of years, yet one of them will, will require minimum assistance times one for all ADLs, and the other will require standby supervision. This all stems from what we call cognitive reserve and brain reserve. So what are that? What, what are they, right? Brain reserve is just the, si the size of one's brain and the, the size and the structural the structural space that each part of the brain takes up. So if something is bigger, it will take more disease to affect change in someone's function than somebody with smaller space in the brain. So brain reserve is what it is. That is just structural space that the brain is taking up. What I want to talk to you about is cognitive reserve. Cognitive reserve has been studied and proven benefit to many conditions aside from Alzheimer's disease. This includes vascular disease, Parkinson's disease, TBI, HIV, MS, and other neuropsychiatric disorders. Cognitive reserve suggests that the brain has the ability to withstand a certain amount of injury, and we're speaking about any kind of injury, even changes from disease or trauma, before symptoms of dementia become visible. In fact, based on someone's level of education, occupational attainment, and the number of leisure activities in which they regularly engage, the brain builds a certain amount of protection against the amount of amyloid plaques in certain areas of the brain. It also builds greater resilience against functional performance implications. I'll speak more about this in our CEU course for executive function, but this idea of cognitive reserve explains all of the varying presentations of symptoms between the same diagnoses. The biggest thing I want you to take out of the principle of cognitive reserve is that it requires preventative and maintenance-based care. So this starts from right now. <laughs> this starts, this is lifelong. This is a lifelong process. Cognitive reserve is built over a lifetime when it comes to what kind of occupation or what kind of vocation you choose. Where are you working? How much education are you receiving? And then finally, what kind of social, what kind of social life do you have? Do you have hobbies? Are you in leadership roles? Are, do you volunteer? Are you in situations that are demanding multiple levels of executive function, this all goes into uh, building someone's cognitive reserve. The motor components of executive function, remember that the brain is all connected. So although we're talking about cognition in occupational therapy in this podcast, you want to understand that you can't excuse motor function from the table. Executive function is everywhere. The brain controls everything. And movement has an impact on the way someone can think clearly. Because your brain can only do so many things. It can only distribute resources so many areas before that is that demand is too great, right? So if someone's experiencing executive dysfunction, we're going to see mobility-based dysfunction as well. 
if somebody is experiencing a lot of motor dysfunction, they're going to distribute all of their cognitive resources to being able just to get through a motor-based task in therapy. They're not also going to be able to have a social conversation. That's why we need to know the status of both their motor function and their cognitive function during a executive function plan of care. Occupational therapy education is very extensive and holistic. We learn the entire body and our scope of practice within our practice guidelines consists of whole body structures, functions, and skills. We can't dismiss one part of the body when working with the brain. That's why dual tasking is one of the only areas that an occupational therapy is unique in because we have both cognitive training as well as motor training. We bridge the gap, right? So keep that in mind as we're moving forward discussing dual tasking training, which we'll get to towards the end of this of this podcast. Moving on to environmental components of executive function, remember the term life space mobility or life space. The spatial environment a person moves through within a specific time period, which includes social interactions, community engagement, and just real world application of functional skills, all of this is crucial to preserve the brain. You see, mild cognitive impairments do not need to become progressive. They don't need to be dementia. Preventative actions can impede cognitive degeneration or cognitive decline in memory changes due to age. So yes, the memory does decline in a minimal capacity in, in aging. However, we can stave off this progressive this progressive process. I'm not saying all of the time, but certainly we can do our part to help this, and that's our role as OT. We can't just compensate somebody right into eternal dysfunction. That's not our role, so we need to know this information. Longitudinal analysis found that individuals who are restricted to home versus those who are not, who those who go out into the community, have a higher risk of developing mild cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's disease, and accelerated decline in global cognitive function. You have to encourage people to leave their home. That is why during the state of COVID-19, so many patients started becoming so much, so much more confused. I can't even tell you how many patients we've seen in the clinic saying they were fine, and over COVID, everything just started changing for them. I keep referring to low-level cognition and executive function, so before we move on, I do want to touch on the difference between the two. Technically, they're the same, but if you want to be specific, I prefer specifics, cognition is divided into low-level cognitive function and executive function. Executive function controls low-level cognitive tasks. If someone is experiencing deficits in low-level cognitive tasks, then you know beyond a shadow of any doubt that their executive functioning capabilities are also being impacted. Occupational therapy practitioners tend to live in the executive dysfunction space 
because we specialize in the rehabilitation of dual tasking, which is what we're going to be talking about. Remembering that all occupations require dual task performance. Head to the blog article to, to learn about all of the possible symptoms you can see with executive dysfunction. Uh, there are many, many symptoms I've listed. So please, after you read this blog or after you, after you listen to this podcast, head over to the blog and go ahead and give that a read. There's a lot of good information in that. All right, so let's jump into the treatment approach for executive function. Hey guys, I just want to interrupt real quick. I want to take a minute to remind you to head to our website for OT treatment ideas, any PDFs we reference in this podcast, and a ton of OT science rationale for your documentation. Be the therapist your clients ask for instead of just the therapist they feel they can do without. Head to the bot portal and OT store at www.buffalooccupationaltherapy.com. And don't forget to find us on social media in our Facebook group at Outpatient OT or on Insta at OT underscore Outpatient. Now back to the show. In school, we learn a lot of compensatory strategies. We get the idea that as occupational therapy practitioners, that's our role is compensation, adaptation, caregiver training, and just learning how to communicate with an individual with Alzheimer's or other related dementias. At least that was how my program depicted our role in executive dysfunction. On the bot portal, I talk about ways to address attention impairments, remembering that there's not just one form of attention, it is a continuum, and I go more into that on the bot portal. I also talk about ways to address visual memory, uh, using the environment as a modality for intervention, as we, as you know, we work in the PEO model, ways to incorporate caregiving, and of course, the traditional medication management, spaced retrieval therapy, and face recognition training. All of these things are common to occupational therapy in the executive functioning spaces. For that reason, I want to focus on two main intervention approaches in occupational therapy, that incorporate executive dysfunction and deficits in low-level cognition. The first approach that you can use as an occupational therapy practitioner is cognitive remedial therapy and dual tasking. Dual tasking is an advanced function used in almost every activity within the nine domains of occupation. It combines two high-level functions like walking and talking when you are with friends or listening and writing while actively making connections to learn new information. Have you ever listened to your teacher while taking like amazing notes, but still fail to recall a single thing you discussed at the end of the day? This is decreased dual tasking performance. I wish I could address all of the research I have done in dual tasking, but that will need to wait for the executive function continuing education course I will build in the future. Instead, I wanna focus on one systematic review of 14 total studies comprised of randomized control studies and repeated measure designs. Fritz and company <laughs> helps us understand that the ability to multitask stems from an individual's ability to have divided attention and their ability to perform the desired motor components of the task. In fact, divided attention impairments and dual tasking deficits are seen in most neurological conditions. This is something you need to know if you work with neurological conditions 
like Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, CVA or stroke, TBI, and of course, Alzheimer's and other related dementias that you commonly see in skilled nursing facilities. So how would you see these impairments? If your client is nervous, has symptoms of anxiety, or is having a social conversation during a treatment while you have asked them to engage in an unsupported static sitting or a standing activity, you may see them start to wobble, maybe they become shaky, but most often they're going to begin to slump. You see, balance, posture, pace and pattern of gaits or how fast and in what way they're walking, and stability are all coordinated to an individual's ability to dual task. Thankfully, available studies show that in mild to severe brain injury deficits, dual tasking training has been shown to improve balance, gait speed, tolerance for complex activity, and the cognitive function itself. So how do we know this relates to occupational therapy? Executive function is one of the core performance functions or performance skills and functions within the occupational therapy practice framework. But if that's not enough for you, they use assessments we use in everyday practice like trail making test, the Stroop test, MOCA, all of these things, and they apply it to diagnoses like moderate Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and other acquired brain injuries. This information tells us that your patients with advanced years have hope and potential for restorative treatment, not just comp compensations and caregiving training. So when we circle back to what we talked about earlier in this episode, you know that we do both habilitative forms of practice and rehabilitative or restorative forms of practice. These randomized controls trials, this systematic study shows that your patient, even with these conditions, has hope to improve executive functioning, and we need to know how to leverage the human body in order to bring this about for our patients and do our part um, on helping them go through life in a least restrictive manner. So let's bring the early part of the conversation even more back into the mix and talk about cognitive reserve. Stern states that by combining a cognitive intervention with an aerobic or mobility-based exercise, we hope to invoke a synergistic effect. That means they work together. The active exercise may actually boost brain reserve to improve plasticity and upregulation of BDNF, and the cognitive intervention may increase cognitive reserve by staying the efficiency of the cognitive networking underlying executive control. So what does all of that mean? <laughs> I know that was definitely a, a mouthful there. What that means is that by using both an active exercise or a mobility-based component and a cognitive intervention, you're actually working on both the structural changes in the brain, but also you're working on the ability to maintain the cognitive reserve they've built over a lifetime. So what are some of the possible interventions that you can use for dual tasking? A lot of them can be found on the BOT portal, we have training videos. We also have explanations, so check that out. I will list a couple of them here. So the first one is serial subtraction while ambulating using a tandem gait pattern. Again, I'll say it. Serial subtraction while ambulating using a tandem gait pattern. I want to note on this, for example, you can phrase this 
by saying walking heel to toe while counting backwards. One is the skilled language of an activity analyst, and one is something an unskilled person can lead in gym class. Elevate your practice by elevating the language you choose to use when describing it. So instead of saying the patient walked heel to toe while counting backwards, you should instead say serial subtraction while ambulating using a tandem gait pattern. This is very important. You do not have the luxury of using basic language when it comes to occupational therapy. You have got to document defensively. We do not have the respect of the medical model. We don't. That's just the way it is. And until we start embracing that as a profession, and until we start stepping up and doing and going above and beyond any other profession, we're not going to demand the respect of the room. So watch the language you choose to use when writing your daily notes. The second activity is catch-release, gross motor coordination activity while ambulating, doing categorization. In other words, bouncing a ball back and forth while listing words in a single category. For example, you'll bounce a ball back and forth with your patient, maybe listing all of the names you can think of or all of the colors. This is very, very good um, multimodal dual tasking activity. The third example is ambulating with good obstacle clearance while using working memory to retrieve answers from questions based on a previously spoken or read narrative. Another way of saying this, walk around and over obstacles while answering questions about a story. The fourth Dynamic stepping outside base of support in multiple planes of movement while repeating digit spans or digit span reversals. The basic way of saying this is stepping out to the sides, forward and backwards while repeating the numbers the therapist reads. And then finally, in an article by Lemke et al. entitled Transferability and Sustainability of Motor Cognitive Dual Tasking Training in Patients with Dementia, which is a randomized control trial, it's suggested that designing a dual tasking plan of care in a continuum from basic trained multi-component dual tasking activities to using dual tasking activities very similar to the demands of the activity being challenged in everyday life is proven to demonstrate good transfer and generalizability into the skills required for dual tasking events when not in therapy. To summarize that, it's stating that it's important to work in a continuum to use basic components like simply walking and categorizing, you are beginning to build the dual tasking skills necessary to do something like remembering a grocery list while walking around the store being distracted by multiple, multiple influencers, okay? So starting with basic components, working into an actual very similar activity or occupation specific activity is how we can work in evidence-based practice using these skills. So we talked about dual tasking. I wanna talk about the second major intervention you can use as a practitioner working within the biopsychosocial framework. This activity, uh, this activity approach is metacognition. What the heck is metacognition? 
You probably don't use the word very often, but I am 100% certain that you are addressing metacognition in every occupational therapy treatment. Why am I so confident in that? Because it's an integral part of the following actions. Global occupational performance, your client's willingness and desire to participate in therapy, and a crucial component of therapeutic potential, which means whether your client will have good, long-lasting results from therapy or whether they will be discharged with limited observed functional gains. More specifically, metacognition is the ability to think about thinking and occurs when self-regulation is applied to cognition. It is the ability to set goals, decide how to alter one's behavior to better meet these goals, and implement new behavior to act upon that desire. When working in the biopsychosocial framework, it is often necessary to provide formal opportunity and training to maximize residual cognitive abilities. Using Metacognitive Strategy Instruction, or MSI, allows for the remediation of executive function disorders following most types of acquired brain injuries. If you've ever learned Bloom's Taxonomy, which is a metacognitive perspective on categories of learning, you will have a better understanding of the conversation you need to facilitate in the treatment with your patient based on their individual needs. After initial evaluation, you will understand where to start in the process from asking your patient to remember and describe daily events and through the continuum. The continuum is as follows. Remember, understand, apply, analyze, evaluate, and create. If you have never looked into Bloom's taxonomy, I would encourage you to do so. So how can you apply this type of metacognitive training into your treatments? The largest and most obvious way is to leave time for the modality itself. That's right, I called it a modality. Remember that modalities used within a treatment differ between professions based on their practice guidelines and scope of practice. For the occupational therapy practitioner, metacognitive instruction is a modality to produce physical outcomes because of the frameworks by which we abide. So what should your guided conversations look like? Number one, identify an appropriate goal based on your patient's current deficits and impairments. So have your patient identify an appropriate goal based on their major deficits and impairments. Number two, have the patient anticipate what they need to do in order to reach that goal. Number three, have the patient identify possible solutions to challenges and barriers they may face to reach the goal. So have them identify the challenges and barriers that they may face and then start listing possible solutions. Number four, have the patient self-monitor and evaluate progress throughout each treatment and throughout the occupational therapy process itself. And number five, have the patient modify the behavior or strategy that they've chosen to use if they're not making adequate process. Never be scared to use conversation as a modality. Occupational therapy is designed to incorporate that in a physical restorative plan of care. By employing MSI or metacognitive strategy instruction into every treatment and intervention when working with executive dysfunction, you call upon types of brain function that can only be improved and activated during the practice of metacognitive skills. This will also help you remain client-centered and empower your patient to be in control of their care. 
In conclusion, occupational therapy has a crucial role in the treatment of cognitive and executive dysfunction. OT has a role that is exclusive to the occupational therapy knowledge base and must be utilized in order to help a patient arrive to their full functional capacity. Dual tasking and metacognitive strategy instruction are two approaches to execute in your OT treatments. Please look for the executive function resources on the bot portal to help you better execute these thoughts in everyday practice. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk soon.